Putin likes to be all threats to all men. Why does anybody conduct military exercises, as always, I guess, to show off the fruits of Russia's considerable military build-up since 2008? Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Ben Pauker, FP's executive editor for The Web, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined remotely by Andrew Wilson and Amy Ferris Rotman. Andrew is a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations and professor of Ukrainian studies at University College London. He's the author of Ukraine's Orange Revolution. Amy is FP's Moscow correspondent. ER listeners, we love hearing from you. If you've got episode ideas or comments, email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So, here in the United States, when we think of Russia's nefarious influence or warfare tactics these days, it's often in the uh, that sort of hybrid warfare space. It's fake news. It's Twitter bots. It's little green men. It's this cyber campaign that was carried out in election hacking. But right now... On Europe's border, there is warfare of a, you know, more Cold War era type. Russia is currently conducting what has been called the largest military exercise since the Cold War called Zapad. That is just ongoing, still ongoing now. It's reaching its latter phase. And it involves thousands of troops and fighter jets and helicopters and missiles and tanks. But, Andrew, I am... I am I hear that there's, this is not just an exercise, a normal exercise for many reasons, but one of the most interesting is that it's got this elaborate backstory. There's actually been a fictitious country created and a whole set of incidents. Why don't you walk us through a little bit of, you know, set, set up the landscape of this exercise for listeners? Well, the first thing I'd say is that uh, conventional war with, as you say, tanks and uh, all those kind of equipment... Uh, and hybrid war aren't necessarily opposites. I mean, one purpose of this exercise is what Russians call maskirovka, uh, masking intentions, which basically means to keep everybody guessing. They fear the worst. They make the wrong moves, um, which is the same kind of effect as you know, little green men or whatever. And there were some persistent rumours about uh, the two being used together that there could be some fake attack by nationalists, some fake demo that required military intervention or whatever. So it's not necessary that they're complete opposites. Um, What's the background? Well, Zapad means West. Soviet Union started these exercises post-war. So that meant the West of their territory. There was a famous exercise in 1980, which was used to intimidate Poland and into the suppression of solidarity. Russia's borders are different now, but Belarus is a partner in these exercises. Not not exclusively to Belarus, they're also in the exclave of Kaliningrad and near St. Petersburg. But we're basically talking about Russia defending itself from a kind of fictitious attack from uh, what looked very much like the Baltic states. That's a fake country called Vyshberia. Uh, and another one called Lublinia. Sounds like Lublin in Poland. Um, sounds a bit Game of Thronesy, but 
the uh, third quest, the questionable country is Vaishnihoria, <laughs> which um, is hard to pronounce because it's made up. That's the area of Belarus that these evil foreigners are supposed to be attacking. Um, but it's also the nationalist part of Belarus. It's not a very big part of Belarus because Belarus isn't very nationalist. But it's the Roman Catholic part, basically. So there's an element of enemy within in this scenario as well, that Belarusian nationalists might be attacking their pro-Russian president. So this exercise is, it's sort of set up, as you put it, with the scope of putting down a separatist movement. You've talked about some of the ones in in the past. Um, I believe there were also Zapad exercises in 2008 and in 2013 that had some real-world precedents. Amy, um, why don't you talk, tell us a little bit about those earlier exercises and the actual military conflagrations that, that sort of came out of them or were suspiciously timed? I mean, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think that the reason there were two previous Zapad exercises, which actually then did lead to real wars. So in 2008, the Zapad exercises were widely understood to be preparation for Russia's invasion of Georgia, which then actually took place in August 2008. Um, the 2013 Zapad exercises were also understood to be preparation for Russia going into Ukraine, which which it still kind of denies in, in, in various ways. And so I think there was this fear, a genuine fear, that this would actually lead to perhaps Russia um, now going in militarily into Belarus. There, there was that fear by some NATO countries. I think there's a lot to be said about that. There is, There are some rumors, some noise going around that if Russia is going to have another war in an ex-Soviet country, then Belarus will be the place where it will take place. Um, so, so we'll see. <laughs> yeah, Andrew, you've you've written about this in foreign policy about whether this exercise is a uh, you know intended as a, a shot across the bow or a signal to Belarus uh, whether it's anti uh, whether it's sort of opposition factions within that country. Um, but is this also you know a, a Signed to the West. I mean, Vladimir Putin has been seemingly concerned about NATO's buildup. The Baltic states are concerned about Russia's buildup. You know, where do where do where do these tensions lie, and what gives rise to this exercise so close to Europe? Well, it's all of those things. You know, Putin likes to be you know all threats to all men. <laughs> so it is partly about um, the uh, movement of some rotating NATO troops into the Baltic states. Poland. But uh, the Belarusian scenario is perhaps not immediately obvious. Belarus and Russia are military allies. You know, they're holding this exercise together. There were some rumors that Belarus was a bit nervous about all of this and might have tried to pull out, but that never came to pass. Yeah, I'm not sure they were given a choice necessarily. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, But uh, Lukashenko has been an awkward ally, and an increasingly awkward ally for Russia, um, particularly since the Ukraine crisis erupted. Um, Russia has become a lot more demanding in its definition of loyalty, and Belarus hasn't uh, cooperated with some of the things that Russia 
has asked it to do diplomatically, like recognising the annexation of Crimea, etc. But Belarus was also pretty spooked by what it saw the Russians doing in Ukraine. So it's been trying to expand its options and its safety margins ever since. So it's a warning shot to President Lukashenko to be a bit more loyal. Is it also um, the large Russian-speaking populations in the Baltics and Estonia and Lithuania and Latvia, um, you know, uh, there has been talk ever since the invasion of Ukraine about the Russian attempts to destabilize those populations, information warfare and the potential, you know, I don't think they're, I don't think anyone is acutely worried about them rolling, the Russians rolling tanks over the border. But the tensions in the Baltics uh, or the concerns of Russian, the you know, interventions in Baltic sovereignty uh, and these large domestic Russian ethnic populations certainly play a role. Don't you say, Amy? They do. I mean, they do and they don't. I must say, I, this is if I had to, this is the number one question I get asked all the time. Um, but by by everyone who's interested in, in Russia is um, Wait, that, what is that question isn't actually is Vladimir Putin the world's richest man? <laughs> well, we know and, that. Okay, all right, sorry. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> but um, I, I hope I don't get into trouble for that. But um, no, I mean th- this question is asked over and over again, and I can see how it's valid. Um, but uh, the view from Moscow is, of course, um, Russia is not. I mean, it will meddle. It has meddled in the Baltics. It would love to meddle more. But I don't see any invasion or any possible military action being taken in any of the Baltic states, and that is simply for the reason that they are EU and they are NATO members. Um, and I, I mean, I really don't think Putin's Russia is there uh, yet in the way it operates. Um, Ukraine is neither of those things. It was aspirational for both. Um, Ukraine was a very different situation. Georgia, very different situation. Um, and Belarus, very different situation um, in terms of their joint history with Russia, um, in terms of a shared religion. Um, I mean, it, you know, talking about history, um, you a lot of people in Russia uh, see, you know, Ukraine, Russia and Belarus all formed part of the medieval uh, Kievan Rus state. Um, and uh, a lot of people in Russia would like to see that, including the government, perhaps put together in some way. And the Baltics simply do not figure in that. So so how does this look as a show of power then to to the region, to, you know, to Belarus, to Ukraine? Um, is this a... a you know, Vladimir Putin has been seen in pictures standing on the review, you know, on the reviewing stand with big binoculars looking at the tanks and fighter jets. Is this an impressive show of force? And what are the actual numbers of troops? I've read, you know, wildly disparate accounts. Officially, I believe Russia has 12,700 troops participating. Um, and if they were to cross the 13,000 person threshold, then they would have, according to uh, the Vienna document, this, uh, agree, this, this agreement, they would have had to have Western observers. But I've also heard that the numbers are, you know, uh, orders of magnitude higher. So what's the, what's the truth here? Do we have any sense of that? 
I don't think that it's higher than the, I mean, maybe it's a bit higher than the 12,700, but I don't think it was massively higher. I mean, the, the Russian army is pretty busy at the moment, <laughs> um, you know, and also I, I agree with Andrew. I think this was largely a warning shot aimed at Lukashenko and his government and less so a show of military might to kind of scare the West. Um, that, 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 that's what I would say. Obviously, the Russians, the Russian state media here, including Putin's spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, you know, he, he just said um, that uh, the idea that there are more troop numbers is hysteria and the West is whipping up hysteria to create a provocation. Um, so there's been a lot of that kind of talk going on. Um, but from what I can see, uh, from what military analysts are saying, it seems like they did stick relatively within the numbers. I mean, I don't know if Andrew's um, heard of something else, maybe. Yeah, I mean, why does, why does anybody conduct military exercises? It is, as always, I guess, to show off your hardware, the fruits of Russia's considerable military build-up since 2008. Um, so intimidation, showing what Russia has and how powerful it is, that's obviously part of the message. With Ukraine, uh, Belarus is just north of Ukraine. So keeping Ukraine guessing the possibility of opening another front against Ukraine, that suits Russia perfectly. The war in the east is bogged down because it's on quite a narrow front. Whereas if you can threaten Ukraine from all sorts of angles, then you recreate the situation that Ukraine found itself in in the spring of 2014, where it did, just didn't know what to do. It didn't have enough troops to cover all the angles of threat. So keeping people guessing is also part of the game. So what is the state of Russian military readiness? Uh, once again, I've, you know, there are conflicting reports. Vladimir Putin made this a sort of central element of his presidency. New fighter jets, new tanks. But it also seems that some of those promises haven't been fulfilled. That military build-up has been going up, as I say, since, going on since 2008. So 10-year program, basically, possibly now hitting its limits. Um, in terms of what the Russian budget can actually um, sustain. But uh, 10 years is a long time. Amy, you were saying? It's very much a 10-year program. Of course, we have to remember that elections are in March next year. Putin is widely expected to run and win. Um, and they've already announced that they're going to de decrease the military or the defense budget, rather, for next year. So it will come um, to, to its end, um, and it will have served a very good purpose. I also, th which is getting Putin re-elected for a third consecutive term, I've, I also think it's worth noting that before Zapad exercises were held, there, uh, Shoigu, the Serbian Sergei Shoigu, the defense minister, was in Syria um, on a very, um, uh, very flashy press tour for both foreign and domestic press. Foreign policy was was not invited, sadly. But um, <laughs> and um, um, but um, I think that's important. The timing of that is very important. They were showing off Syria. They were showing off their hardware, the military hardware in Syria, and then immediately after Zapad, the Zapad exercises started. So I think that that's you know that was not done by accident. Uh, one reason for keeping the numbers in Zapad relatively low, if we believe that is the case, uh, is that you use exercises to show off your big guns and your best guys. It's pretty standard to say that the Russian military reforms have actually created two armies. You've got elite forces, which are pretty good. You've got all the kind of high-tech stuff they've been showing off in Syria. High-tech, super-destructive. 
Uh, but you've still got a big, unwieldy conscript base army that's the kind of majority. Again, R- Russia has kind of hit the limits of some, some of the kinds of things that it's possible to do when it's both in Syria and it's supporting rebels in East Ukraine. Um, so keeping people guessing by sort of hinting that Russia could do more is, is partly bluff. You know, is is this also uh, an attempt by Russia to show that it can fight on multiple fronts? I mean, they're engaged in, in Syria, as you say. Uh, there are... Uh, Exercises, uh, naval exercises actually going on, uh, I believe, with China in Vladivostok over in the Far East um, that that perhaps will involve a show of force around North Korea. Um, you know, is is there a, a sense that Russia wants to show that it, it can operate uh, like the U.S. military and, and keep multiple balls in the air at the same time? Maybe one and a half, maybe two fronts, but no more. <laughs> uh, when uh, Russia went into Syria, it downgraded in East Ukraine, partly because it was a political move to shift attention as well. Certainly, Russia can't keep all those balls in the air in all the places that you mentioned. M- militarily, it can't, but it would love to pretend it can. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's key here. I mean, um, you know, Putin's um, expanding his or Russia's military and political um, presence on the global stage. And this is very much part of it. But Andrew's right. I mean, the the military is simply not strong enough to actually uh, do that. But um, he would love uh, to to give that impression. Absolutely. Amy, how how did these exercises play, uh, you know, within Russia? I mean, we've, we're certainly reading about them here at Foreign Policy and writing about them. And there's been some coverage in European press and in the United States. Um, is this the kind of thing that uh, gets shown on television or that leads the front pages of newspapers? Absolutely. It's been nonstop glory uh, for the last <laughs> four days. <laughs> um, absolutely nonstop. Or, you know, the, uh, as you know, Russians are um, very enthusiastic watchers of television. Most television is state run, uh, almost all. Um, and it's been on the TV um, pretty much the whole time um, since it since it began um, being shown as um, in the same kind of patriotic uh, way that the military parade for 9th of May to celebrate the victory over Nazis, uh, the Nazis uh, it, it is. It, that's the kind of similar, similar words are being used and kind of uh, the same music, the same kind of, um, you know, uh, feeling of, of triumph, even though this is a fake uh, country that we're talking about here, you know, for, in this military exercise. But um, yeah, no, it's just being portrayed as, um, yeah, Russia's great. Look what we can do. Look how wonderful we are. Um, and and look how look how silly the West is. I sometimes wonder though that it has a bit of a whiff of the seventies about it. You know, Russia spends is it six percent I think of GDP on defence officially, possibly more. You know, way more than the kind of two percent target for um, NATO countries. Russia's GDP is pretty small, and people can see how many resources are being diverted to keep all this pomp and glory going. Um, and in the 70s and 80s, you know, that was pretty double-edged for the later Soviet Union. So I saw this uh, this little 
clip, this little video, maybe you know, 20 seconds long or so, of um, this helicopter accidentally firing missiles uh, at some observers. You know, there's this guy who might be filming this on his uh, smartphone as a helicopter comes in, and all of a sudden it shoots uh, at a line of cars and, and these guys up on a hill. Does, does that kind of stuff make the TV in, uh, in Moscow, Amy? It did make the TV, um, but it was it was it was shown as oh my goodness, look look, it was simply a mistake, and look how the West has exaggerated this. Um, uh, I see. So, yeah. Well, so, I mean, I mean, obviously it was a mistake, but um, <laughs> it makes well, for good it makes for good video, I have to say. Uh, yeah, no, it was. Um, uh, I, I also think, I mean, and maybe this is the the, the cynic in me that part of um, part of um, uh, Russian TV and Russians were kind of like, aha. See, uh, see how well they work. Um, but you know that that's kind of. Um, I mean, the, the that's maybe cynical of me. The exiled um, journalist and critic Arkady uh, Babchenko, who who now lives in Israel, he made um, quite a lot of. Um, he's a fierce critic of Putin, and he he made quite a lot of fun of uh, of that happening. Um, and he said, "Oh, this is proof about how rubbish our military really is." Um, and he got a lot of. Um, he got a he got into a lot of trouble for that kind of you know in the blogosphere, um, but no, I mean yeah, it was it, it was like like I said, it was shown and kind of oh oh the West because the West is often portrayed as uh, this hysterical ridiculous <laughs> you know kind of uh, creature kind of oh stop the hysteria calm down already you know you know that's pretty fair I have to admit. <laughs> well, when when you start agreeing with the Russians, it's a, it's a dangerous slope. <laughs> So what what if, you know, if interested listeners were sort of following these exercises, what is the, you know, what are the potential flashpoints that, that Russia, uh, at least in its near abroad, is, are, are, is concerned about? Um, you know, obviously, Andrew and Amy, you both have mentioned Belarus, uh, which is in the sort of complicated position of trying to appeal to the West a little bit, but still being a, a vassal state. Uh, of Russia, are there other flashpoints or um, issues of security that are still front and center on on you know Russian military planners and and the political radar screen? Well, I'd mention three. The first would be Ukraine. It's always Ukraine. That's uh, unfinished business, big time. Um, so. There are all sorts of scenarios there, Crimea, the Donbass, other areas. Second, Putin is on record, actually, of making very threatening remarks about Kazakhstan, saying how its current ruler, Nazarbayev, has made such a good job of uh, turning a fake country into a plausibly real one, implying that without him, uh, it, it wouldn't be. Its sovereignty wouldn't be respected by Russia. Um, third, I guess, uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan are always capable of restarting fighting. Uh, I think more than 100 were killed uh, last spring in the last flare-up. And that's always something for Russia to worry about and worry about managing. It tries to keep the two sides equal in this case uh, and not capable of delivering a knockout blow against each other. But uh, managing that is always a priority for Russia. 
I think we've got to look a bit domestically as well. Um, it, it doesn't get reported a lot but or given a lot of attention, but Dagestan in Russia's North Caucasus is a flashpoint. It, unlike Chechnya, it's, it's, it's not being managed, you know, with, with a tight fist. And there, there's a lot of activity going on there at the moment, jihadist-related activity. Um, and that, that could potentially spill over into other regions in the North Caucasus and could be a huge headache, potentially. And we should also talk about fake flashpoints. You know, Russia is perfectly capable of starting a wag-the-dog-style war anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that that is that is clear. So, you know, as these exercises sort of conclude, is there a foregone conclusion to them? I mean, it's clearly scripted at some level. It starts with the separatist movement. It then transitions into a defense of the region, and then the counterattack phase started a day or two ago. Um, you know, does this end with uh, a comprehensive Russian victory over uh, these, um, you know, democratic or separatist insurgents um, and then a victory parade on Red Square? How, how does this all wrap up in the end? <laughs> one presumes so, but one should always watch the actual borders. <laughs> you know, we don't want to see Russia uh, going too far in its sort of counterattacks, that applies to the Ukrainian border as well, which is pretty marshy. It's a pretty marshes that caused problems for invaders throughout the centuries. But any incursion into Ukrainian territory or fake um, fake attack from Ukrainian territory would be a real flashpoint. Um, but we don't know the script in entirety, as I said at the start. That's that's kind of the point. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree. Any any kind of, I mean, that is the big fear, isn't it? That um, there's also the big fear that in real life, um, that, that that Russia will leave some troops there. I don't know. I don't know how much of, of reality um, that that would be. But I mean, in terms of in in terms of how Russia would like it to to finish, of course, it's going to be total victory for the Russians, and with of course their partners Belarus by their side. Yeah, I think um, declaring total victory sounds like something that. Uh Putin would be happy with, and uh, his counterpart here uh, in Washington seems inclined to do the same. Um, is there is there a you know an element of a show of force to the U- United States in any of this, uh, or does the the sort of looming specter of this Russia investigation and the tensions with uh, you know additional sanctions from Congress and the Trump administration does that factor into this at all? I think so. I mean, uh, because as far as Russia's concerned, uh, NATO is is the United States, is an extension of the United States. Um, and this was directed against NATO and the kind of rhetoric being used by the government officials here, the military here is um, it is phrased in those kind of in, in those kind of terms of um, we're going to win. Look at us. You know, don't mess with us type thing. Um, I don't know if it's a warning uh, towards Washington, but it's definitely it's definitely a message. So if Trump is a Russian stooge, he's not a very effective one. You know, the Russians certainly haven't got from him what they hoped and expected to get originally uh, in January. In a way, Trump's troubles over the, the uh, investigation of the Russia link sort of forces him to, into a corner and makes him unable to do the kind of things that Russia wants him to do that would be perceived as proof of, you know, the collusion, the alleged collusion. 
Um, so I think Russia is confused about Trump and what he means. Welcome to the, you know, <laughs> to the same place as the rest of it. <laughs> Welcome to the next three and a half years. Well, Amy, uh, well, I don't know. Let's not let's not uh, prognosticate, perhaps. But um, Amy, Andrew, thank you guys so much. I think this was really enlightening, um, and we'll have you on again soon. Great. Take care. Thanks a lot. Our pleasure. You've been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm Ben Pauker, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us.